0: Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex podcast with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of July 30th, 2022. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And we've been talking a lot lately about the global pickle that the human race finds itself in at this moment. But tonight, we're going to look at the particular pickle that we here in the United States find ourselves in, with the country poised at the very edge of an actual right-wing authoritarian, or if you will, fascist, takeover. And no, that's not hyperbole. And uh, perhaps counterintuitively, I'm going to start by uh, calling out President Joe Biden Now, there's no shortage of things that I could call Biden out on, but I'm just going to mention that hundreds, perhaps thousands of kids are being held at Fort Bliss, an army base in Texas that has been repurposed by the Biden administration as a migrant detention facility. It is operated by the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, to hold kids as they decide what to do with them, kids who arrive at the border without an adult. And there are a further 5,000 or so who are being held in Customs and Border Protection Facilities, CBP, which are presumably even worse while they await transfer to Health and Human Services, HHS. Uh, About a year ago, in response to a flurry of news stories about the situation of Fort Bliss, one Luz Lopez Ortiz, attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center, said, quote, it seems like the Biden administration has unfortunately slid back into a page from the Trump playbook, unquote. Last April, some 30 activists from the group's Witness at the Border and the Border Network for Human Rights walked the eight miles from El Paso's main port of entry to the gates of Fort Bliss to protest the detention of minors at the facility. And it was revealed during this spate of coverage last year that the Biden administration has also reopened the detention facility at Carrizo Springs, Texas. A former camp for oil field workers now being run by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, to hold minors arriving at the border unaccompanied. The Trump administration had actually closed the Carrizo Springs facility in response to protests in July 2019, and its opening last year led to charges that the new administration of Joseph Biden is again holding kids in cages, unquote. However, uh, it should be noted that the Trump-era photos that sparked outrage of minors being held in cages or chain link partitions in official parlance were from other detention facilities, mostly reconverted warehouses run by CBP and now closed. Not Carrizo Springs, which is run by ICE, different branches of the Department of Homeland Security. It should also be noted that Trump's family separation policy has been overturned by the new administration. The kids being held at Carrizo Springs and Fort Bliss today arrived at the border without an adult. They were not taken from their parents or guardians by force, as under Trump. And the surge of unaccompanied minors arriving at the border does face authorities with difficult decisions. Many of these kids can be reunited with uh, family members already in the United States, but some have no family in the United States and cannot be released without an adult sponsor taking custody. Releasing them to the wrong person holds risks of its own. In 2014, for instance, there was outrage after human traffickers took some youths who were released from HHS custody to go work on an egg farm in Ohio, evidently against their will. Now, I'm starting with this to make a point. Holding kids on military bases is repugnant and to be opposed, however real the dilemma the administration is facing here. But the notion, often heard in some rather than thou left wing circles, that nothing has changed since Trump, and the only difference is that now nobody is protesting the abuses because a Democrat is in office, is inaccurate. Both of those assertions are inaccurate. Indeed, things have changed insufficiently, and indeed, the ongoing abuses are being protested. Now, let's review some of the uh, big Supreme Court decisions of this year, with the court now in its 6-3 division, beginning with one concerning precisely this dilemma of migrant detention, which got all Too little attention. On June 13th, the Supreme Court ruled in two separate cases that undocumented immigrants who were detained for more than six months are not entitled to a bond hearing. This essentially upholds indefinite migrant detention. In Johnson versus Arteaga Martinez, only Justice Breyer, who has since stepped down to be replaced by Katanji Brown-Jackson, dissented in part, which is rather disturbing and is more criticism for our side, so to speak, near unanimous court. Now, they ruled on the uh, basis of statutory authority rather than constitutionality, but it strikes me as blatantly unconstitutional on the basis of habeas corpus, I'm kind of having a hard time getting my head around how there could have been a near-unanimous bad decision like this. In the other case, on the same matter, or related matter, decided that same day, Garland versus Aleman Gonzalez, the court split 6-3 along the predictable lines. And that one specifically concerned the question of whether migrants detained without a bond hearing for longer than six months are entitled to injunctive relief. So, a somewhat more far-reaching decision. Another immigration-related case, on July 21st, the Supreme Court temporarily blocked a Biden administration immigration policy that would have stopped deportations unless the non-citizen is perceived to be a threat to national security, public order, or border security. This was a... uh, 5-4 order, with Amy Coney Barrett surprisingly joining the court's three liberals, uh, denying the Biden administration's application to reinstate the policy after a lower court had ruled against the administration and a challenge brought by Texas and Louisiana. Then there was the one good decision among the many monstrous decisions of the past months, On June 30th, the Supreme Court rejected a challenge to uh, the Biden administration's efforts to end the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, officially known by the rather Orwellian moniker, the Migrant Protection Protocols, the Trump-era immigration program that forces asylum seekers arriving at the order to await approval in Mexico for their asylum claims. Biden's effort to overturn it was challenged by Texas. And in the 5-4 decision in Biden versus Texas, Justices Roberts and Kavanaugh joined with the uh, three liberals on the court. Again, the only good decision we saw this year. Disturbingly, more than a month after the decision, the administration still hasn't actually ended the policy, but they fought in the courts to do so, and hopefully will. All right, then let's uh, move on to other matters that the Supreme Court has ruled on. Most notoriously, June 24th decision, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization upholding a Mississippi anti-abortion law, and overturning Roe versus. Wade. And I'm just going to point out that this came six weeks after a court in El Salvador sentenced a woman to 30 years in prison after she suffered an obstetric emergency that resulted in termination of her pregnancy. According to a local advocacy group that was assisting in her defense, the Citizen Group for the Decriminalization of Abortion, or Agrupación Ciudadana por la Despenalización del Aborto, they denounced the sentence and said that they would appeal the conviction. The woman, identified only as Esme, was held in pre-trial detention for two years following her arrest. When she sought medical care at a public hospital, she already had a seven-year-old daughter, who was now, ironically, being deprived of her mother. Utterly dystopian, straight out of Handmaid's Tale, a grim portent of what? this country, the United States, could look like in a few years. Now, I should point out that none of the eight states where abortion is now outlawed, pursuant to the Dobbs decision, are there any penalties on the books against the woman. However, some of the pending laws in other states in the wake of the Dobbs decision are headed in that direction. For instance, The pending anti-abortion law in Indiana includes language that allows for criminal persecution if the woman lies to obtain an abortion. And the Republicans are obviously harboring ambitions to pass anti-abortion legislation at the federal level as well. All right, let's uh, just briefly touch on, uh, just to get it out of the way, June 23rd decision New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, a 6-3 to three decision, shooting down, if you'll forgive the pun, the uh, long-standing New York State law requiring a special permit to carry a handgun. Now, this is the only one of the lot that I confess I feel somewhat ambivalent about. As we've noted before, the Second Amendment is a poorly written model of equivocation, And both the liberal and conservative positions on it are fundamentally dishonest, both claiming to have the correct interpretation of a text which is actually completely ambiguous and probably intentionally ambiguous, with the liberals claiming that because of the well-regulated militia clause, in the Second Amendment and only in the Second Amendment, the term the people actually means the National Guard. And the Conservatives simply pretending that the well regulated militia clause just isn't there. Well, uh the Supreme Court is now unambiguously ruled for that second dishonest position. So I mean certainly a dishonest decision. <laughs> a bad decision, I guess, but um I think that the notion that there is any correct interpretation of the uh Second Amendment is itself self-deluded. Okay, this next one is really ominous. June 30th, West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, which was consolidated with several other cases which were brought by coal companies, <clears throat> a 6 to 3 decision curtailing the uh, EPA authority on greenhouse gas emissions the court found that the EPA does not have authority under the Clean Air Act to enforce proposed power plant emission limitations. And what's particularly ominous here is that the majority, with Robert's writing, relied on the so-called major questions doctrine, a first in Supreme Court history, apparently. The major questions doctrine holds that agencies, such as the EPA, overstep their authority if they issue regulations on questions of, quote, vast economic or political significance, unquote, but the Congress has to explicitly delegate this authority to the agency in question. Now, of course, this is an entirely subjective category major questions or questions of vast economic or political significance. And in fact, the uh, Supreme Court here was partially walking back a uh, 2007 decision by the court in Massachusetts versus EPA that greenhouse gases are air pollutants that can be regulated under the Clean Air Act. So, what seems to be at issue here is the scope of the regulations. So, a step forward in 2007 and a step back in 2022. And this decision just guts whatever fighting chance the United States had to meet its commitments under the Paris Climate Accords. And what is so perverse is that it comes amid the disastrous symptoms of climate change. Dominating the headlines, the flooding in Kentucky and the Midwest, fires, wildfires out of control from California to Alaska this year, debilitating heat waves, the disappearance of rivers across the Intermountain West, most especially the Colorado, with cities like Las Vegas literally not knowing where they are going to get their water in the months to come, and potentially devastating consequences for the Imperial Valley of California, a completely artificial and irrigation-dependent heartland of agriculture for the entire United States on land that is naturally desert. And if you think that food prices are high now, you ain't seen nothing yet. If the Bureau of Reclamation has to cut water to the Imperial Valley, and it has already been broached. Utterly terrifying, and the Paris Accord goals themselves are probably too little too late. This is really, really not good, and what's particularly sinister and ominous about this case is that it was brought against the Obama administration's so-called Clean Power Plan, which is long dead. It was killed by Trump and not revived by Biden. So West Virginia and the coal companies pursued this case to establish a precedent for the major questions doctrine, which can be applied to several other pending cases. And here I'm quoting from a uh, report from the Congressional Research Service on the decision. Quote, Meanwhile, litigants and judges have invoked the major questions doctrine in other environmental lawsuits, including challenges to vehicle greenhouse gas emission standards, the scope of federal jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act, and federal agencies' use of estimates of the social cost of greenhouse gas emissions in their regulatory processes, end quote. So again, this is just the beginning. And this decision potentially portends an effective end to environmental regulation entirely. Just ominous as all get out. Okay, in another case of um, a step back after a step forward, June 29th, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Oklahoma can prosecute non-Native Americans who commit crimes against Native Americans on tribal territory. This decision limits the 2020 McGirt v. Oklahoma ruling, in which the Supremes held that uh, much of eastern Oklahoma was still Creek indigenous sovereign territory, and that the state could not prosecute crimes committed by Native Americans within those boundaries. So here, a bad decision walking back, in part, a previous good decision. Okay, here's another one that uh, a lot of you probably missed. Way back on March 3rd, the Supreme Court ruled in U.S. versus Zubaida, finding that the so-called State Secrets Doctrine... Prevents Guantanamo Bay detainee Abu Zubaydah from seeking information about the CIA black site facility in Poland where he was tortured. And again, disappointingly, Breyer wrote for the majority on that decision. But all of that is a mere prelude to what may be coming next when the court's next term begins in the fall. To quote Bachman-Turner Overdrive, you ain't seen nothing yet. Once again, now uh, follow this. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear Moore versus Harper, a challenge to the congressional maps in North Carolina that could overturn 200 years of election law in this country. Members of the state legislature are urging the Supreme Court to reinstate the map that they drew and that the North Carolina courts had struck down as unconstitutional. And they are invoking what is known as the Independent State Legislature Theory, or ISL, which claims that the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures the power to regulate federal elections without checks from other state officials or from the state's constitution. This could set a precedent that goes far beyond congressional redistricting. Voting rights advocates are warning that the case could help Republican state lawmakers subvert the 2024 presidential elections. Using ISL, for instance to create false slates of electors pledged to Trump or whoever the Republican candidate is. And this comes just as the congressional hearings on the January 6th insurrection have revealed that Trump and his strategists were openly discussing this idea in 2020 and actually used the term fake electors, albeit in quotation marks, in their emails to one and other, particularly at issue are emails of Jack Willenchick, a Phoenix-based lawyer who helped organize the pro-Trump electors in Arizona in a uh, December 8th, 2020 email to a um, advisor for the Trump campaign. And Trump is obviously about to declare his candidacy. And his supporters in state Republican parties across the country are laying the groundwork for such shenanigans in 2024, more or less openly, under their perverse slogan, Stop the Steal. The Republican Party is getting more radicalized by the minute. The Republican Party of Texas party platform just adopted language calling homosexuality an abnormal lifestyle choice, and calls for a referendum on Texas's secession from the union presumably in the event of a democratic victory in 2024 then there's the open alliance between the Republican Party and resurgent European fascism if there's a you know a, a GOP flirtation with Vladimir Putin there is now practically a formal alliance with Hungary's prime minister Viktor Orbán Who is now being censured by the European Union for anti gay legislation and for shutting down the opposition media? He actually spoke at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, which was held in Budapest back in May. And he's scheduled to speak at a CPAC conference in Texas next week, despite having just days ago gone full Nazi railing in a speech against race mixing yes really quote we hungarians are not a mixed race and we do not want to become a mixed race orban said in a speech on july 23rd and i really hope that you're all paying attention to the hearings of the us house select committee on the january 6th attack one of the more horrendous tidbits was the testimony of Ruby Freeman in Georgia about how the Trump machine, right up to direct words from Trump and Giuliani, unleashing a racist mob to threaten an elderly African American poll worker at her home, forcing her to move at the urging of the FBI but the most egregious instance of racist threatening of uncorrupted election workers in Georgia, leading to several quitting or going into hiding. General Mike Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor, pardoned by Trump after being indicted for lying to the FBI about conversations with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, was the most blatant voice calling for Trump to deploy the military and declare martial law in that period between the 2020 election and Biden's inauguration, he repeatedly, in his testimony before the committee via Zoom, pleaded the Fifth Amendment when asked if the January 6th violence was justified. Liz Cheney asked such questions over and over again, just changing the wording, do you believe the violence was justified? The fifth. Do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? The fifth. I mean, how much more blatant does it get? So we are rapidly approaching a point where we will not be dealing with, as we have since the Reagan revolution, incremental steps in the wrong direction in the context of at least a formalistically democratic system, no matter how stultified. Now, I am by no means minimizing these bad Supreme Court decisions. Some of those increments were very, very big increments, disastrously big. But we are poised to go over the edge into something qualitatively more disastrous, something qualitatively worse. What we witnessed In January 2021 was an attempted coup, and they are laying the groundwork to do it again in 2024, openly, and this time having learned from their mistakes and doing it more methodically. Another interesting news story you may have missed. The Senate Armed Services Committee this month, July, called upon the Defense Department to halt its programs to prevent and root out extremism in the ranks. This is a, uh, a report accompanying the Senate's National Defense Authorization Act, which was released July 18th, stating the committee's view that, quote, spending additional time and resources to combat exceptionally rare instances of extremism in the military is an inappropriate use of taxpayer funds and should be discontinued by the Department of Defense immediately, end quote. It was approved by every Republican on the committee and voted against by every Democrat on the committee. Now, put this all together. What is going on here? You don't have to be a damn rocket scientist to see the agenda here. They are getting ready to steal the election in 2024, in the ultra-cynical guise of Stop the Steal, under a veneer of legalism, thanks to a dubious doctrine which may be embraced by the Supreme Court as soon as this October, and then have Mike Flynn or someone of his ilk rally the generals at the Pentagon to intervene to declare martial law potentially deputizing paramilitary groups aided by the far-right networks within the military, dominate the streets if it comes to a political showdown, and instate Trump in the presidency at gunpoint. This is not a joke. This is an obvious reality. Now, there are two errors in terms of the response from the progressive forces in this country to this dilemma. First, you've got, I'm only mentioning it first because more of my friends personally fall into this category, you've got the radical left error, so to speak, the notion that there's no difference between the two parties, or worse, that the Democrats are the real enemy because they're more insidious. Now, why I find this particularly ironic is that ever since the Reagan revolution, My big criticism of the Democrats has been their timidity and acquiescence in the face of the right-wing offensive. The Dems acquiesced in NAFTA and free trade economics throughout the hemisphere, and then taking it global through the World Trade Organization. They went along with the war on drugs and Plan Colombia and the hypertrophy of the prison industrial complex. They went along with the dismantling of the New Deal social safety net. I've been witnessing it and writing about it and opposing it every step of the way. I don't need to be lectured about any of it. I agree that the Democrats share a lot of the blame for the grim juncture we find ourselves at today. But finally, Trumpism and an actual attempted coup d'etat have shaken them out of their torpor, and at long last, they really are displaying some cojones, at least in attempting to apply some brakes on the Trumpist agenda to establish a right-wing dictatorship in this country. And half of my stupid leftist friends are like, Oh, it wasn't really an attempted coup. Russiagate is a false narrative. The Democrats are the real enemy. It's just maddening. It's like saying that there was no difference between the two parties in 1860. It's utterly diluted. Then you've got the, uh, you know, the moderate left or liberal left error of indicting Trump and relitigating January 6th is only going to further polarize things. Maybe if we just let bygones be bygones, the Republicans will just chill out. Again, so utterly, utterly deluded. This is the appeasement argument, the same which is made by those who are urging the Ukrainians to capitulate to Putin in the name of peace. It is way too late for that. Any appeasement will only be seen as weakness and exploited. Trumpism must be utterly defeated. And especially given how they fetishize power and success, the only way to defeat Trumpism is to actually defeat it, not to appease it. There must be federal charges against Donald Trump, and he should be sent not to the White House, but to the slammer, and then we have to stay mobilized and on the offensive, because ultimately the problem isn't Trump so much as Trumpism, and the candidate in 2024 may not be Trump himself, but a DeSantis or a Mike Pence who would perhaps lack Trump's swagger, which appears in the eyes of his worshippers as charisma, but may be more of a strategic actor and less of a blunderer, because Trump's ultimate inability to organize an effective coup is a part of what saved us in 2021. And we may get a fascist with better organizational skills next time. And uh, reconciliation and coexistence, yeah, if the country weathers this crisis, and there actually is a post-Trump era at some point down the road, and we're not in it yet, then we can have a truth and reconciliation process, such as took place in South Africa, and Northern Ireland, and El Salvador, but we are nowhere near that stage of the game. This is the moment for resistance, not reconciliation. Okay, on the whole Supreme Court dilemma, there's a lot of talk among progressives of demanding that Biden pack the court, that is, add more justices, as FDR considered doing when the court was blocking his New Deal legislation in the 1930s. Well, I don't necessarily oppose this idea, But it isn't the magical solution that a lot of progressives seem to think it is. Ultimately, it's kicking the can down the road, and it's an invitation to the next Republican president to unpack the court or to pack it further. And I have this to say about the Supreme Court. To a large extent, it reflects the general cultural climate and reacts to mass mobilization. I don't think. It is a coincidence that Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, upholding the separate but equal doctrine of racial segregation, was overturned in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, when the civil rights movement was mounting, or that Roe versus Wade came at the height of second wave feminism, or women's liberation, as it was called at the time. The cultural climate is ultimately what needs to be changed. And that brings us back to the social struggle and what was called in the early years of the Trump presidency the resistance before both the radical left and the moderate left abandoned this critical notion for reasons already discussed. Now, as unseemly as it may be to say, I told you so... You know, I rarely make political predictions, but I did in 2016, and I was unhappily vindicated, and I don't want to have to play Cassandra again. I stated at the time that Trump would not concede defeat no matter the outcome in the 2020 elections, and that there would not be a peaceful transfer of power, and there wasn't. Now, my prediction that did not quite pan out was: uh, you know, I was convinced, and you can go back and review the vlogs that I did at the time in the fall of 2020, where I said exactly this. I was convinced that Trump's election would mean either civil war or dictatorship. And I still maintain that we very narrowly avoided either civil war or dictatorship or both. And largely, once again, because of Trump's poor organizational skills. But it is a much more dangerous moment now than it was in 2016. In part due to the damage of four years of Trumpism in power and the ultra radicalization of the Republican Party, but also due to the related factors of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine the economic chaos, which is related to both of those factors, and the ecological collapse, which seems to have unfortunately advanced considerably just in the past five years. A Trump election in 2024 would send the U.S. right over the edge into either dictatorship or civil war or both. I am convinced of this. Now, contrary to popular belief on the radical left, Voting does not mean selling your soul. It does not imply giving the Democrats a blank check, or cultivating illusions about them, or not protesting them. It is critical that we develop a more pragmatic approach to the question of voting and our view of the Democratic Party. And I'll point out again the irony that, you know, the Democratic leadership at this moment is more forthright in calling out the fascist threat of Trumpism than many of my rather than thou lefty friends. Now, I uphold the notion of by any means necessary. I support the right to self defense. I devoutly hope that we can avoid a civil war in this country, but not at the price of imposition of a right-wing dictatorship, or repealing the rights of large sectors of the populace. If we go over the edge into outright fascism, we must resist to the ultimate consequences. No equivocation. But I also insist that at this moment, any means necessary must include voting. Gee, imagine that getting your hands dirty with voting, as well as with mass mobilization in the streets and workplaces and communities, mobilization militantly independent of the Democrats and all political parties, as, for instance, the Black Lives Matter uprising of 2020 was. There must be no equivocation on what the principal enemy is at this moment, Trumpism is fascism, and it must be utterly smashed. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.